we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome back to Parsing Immigration Policy, podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm the executive director of the center. And in this week's episode, we're going to talk about the H-2B visa. Sounds kind of wonky, but it matters. The news hook for this, the reason we're doing it now, is that the Department of Homeland Security recently increased the number of visas for this year. We'll talk about how that's even possible a little later, but that was just announced when the pandemic is still going on. Unemployment is still high, and the administration has announced an increase in the number of the visas. And to be bipartisan about this, the Trump administration last year did the same thing and actually increased it by even more when unemployment was worse earlier in the pandemic. So this is a problem that our immigration system has that the responsibility is shared by all parties. And the H-2B visa is for unskilled but non-agricultural jobs, supposed to be seasonal. It's not like the H-1B which people may be more familiar with, which is for tech workers mainly, not just them, but for skilled workers. And it's not the farm worker visa, which is the H-2A, just to keep your alphabet soup straight. This is the H-2B visa, which is used by all kinds of non-ag, low-skilled employers, landscapers, carnival operators, that sort of thing. And our guests will talk about that in more detail. Jessica Vaughn, is who we're going to be speaking with. She's the director of policy studies here at the center and has long experience in both visa-related issues, especially because of her time in the State Department, and also law enforcement, uh, gangs, ICE-related issues that really she developed an expertise in starting with a report that the center did for the Department of Justice, which she oversaw a number of years ago and has continued to develop that expertise, including in areas like sanctuary cities. But this week, we're going to be talking about this guest worker visa, the H-2B visa. So, Jessica, thanks for doing this. And if you could just kind of start telling people what this is, how many, you know, visas there are, that sort of thing, kind of an overview, a uh, sort of H-2B visa 101 in a few minutes. Jessica? Sure. Glad to be talking with you. The H-2B visa, as you said, is a temporary work visa, and it is for employers who can show that they have a temporary or seasonal or intermittent or what they call peak load need for workers. Although like so many of our visas, the word temporary can be a little bit misleading, and the word seasonal is a little misleading, I think, with respect to these visas, because the workers can stay here for nine or 10 months out of the year and renew it for up to three years. So what happens is that they often are here for most of the year, 
go to their back to their home country for a couple of months, we hope, and come right back here year after year to work in this program. So a lot of these jobs are not really temporary and they're permanent jobs that the employers are using foreign workers to fill. And a lot of so times- it's kind of like uh, just to interrupt in a lot of cases, in other words, these are permanent jobs that just have like a three month vacation. It's sort of like being a teacher. Exactly, exactly. In other words, you don't think of a teacher as a seasonal job, and yet that's the same kind of model as some of these jobs. Anyway, go ahead. Right. And they're allowed to bring family members with them. So we have to wonder how temporary the situation really is. One of the features of the visa program is that it is subject to numerical limits. The cap on these visas is 66000 a year, although there have been some exceptions to that. We don't know exactly how many the H-2B workers there are in the country at one time. It's been estimated that it's somewhere more than 100,000, perhaps as many as 130,000 or 140,000 every year. We do know where they come from and who hires them and what kind of jobs they have and where they're working in the United States. The vast majority of H-2B workers are coming from Mexico. But we also get workers from Jamaica and Guatemala and the Ukraine and South Africa in significant numbers. I should add that the Department of Labor and USCIS publish a lot of information about use of the H-2B visa, and we have that data easily available on our website in our data portal. So if you go to cis.org to the data portal tab and go down to the Department of Labor section of that, you can review a lot of really interesting information on this program. And that's where I'm getting a lot of this data right from the government website. One thing is, is that this data talks about how many workers were requested by U.S. employers. And so we don't know how many of them actually came and got visas, but it still really is helpful in understanding how this program is used. And that's where the gap is in understanding often is that, you know, we have the theoretical purpose of the visa for short-term seasonal workers, but in fact, the reality of the program is quite different. Now, so we know where they come from. Uh, The top states for H-2B workers are Texas, Florida, Louisiana, Colorado, and Arkansas. The largest single category of workers is landscapers and groundskeepers is the largest single category. That's why we find a lot of them working in the southern states. Now, interestingly, though, the top three employers who hire H-2B workers are in just a couple of industries. The top employer is a company called Trident Seafood that is based in Seattle, Washington, and they hire seafood processing workers. And the number two and the number three companies are One of them is called Progressive Solutions, and the other is called ABC Tree Services. And they do different kinds of work. They hire H2B workers to do outdoor work. For example, Progressive, interestingly enough, is a type of a job that's definitely a niche occupation. They hire workers to go around where there are telephone poles and other utility installations to spray herbicide to keep the, they call it vegetation management. So they go around all over the country spraying weed killer 
to keep the growth down under the telephone wire and electrical wire installations all over the country. Obviously a job Americans wouldn't do. I mean, you're walking around spraying Roundup around, you know, telephone poles. I mean, it's both an essential job. I mean, I make no fun of it. It's actually a very important job. But the idea that we would need to import people because we don't have enough people who have the skills to spray Roundup around telephone poles is kind of ridiculous. It is ridiculous. These jobs, most of them do not require any skills or education. Uh, The vast majority of them do not even require a high school education. So it's not like this is some special skill that exists in a certain segment of the population. Anyone could do this work. You do it from April to November. One thing that I found interesting is that this company asked for 1,000 H-2B workers last year. And yet on their website... This is the one that that sprays the weed killer? Yes. Progressive Education Management Company. They asked for 1,000 H-2B workers last year, but I looked on their website, and they say that they have about 500 workers. So it looks pretty clear to me that all of their vegetation management employees seem to be H-2B workers, at least from what we can tell. And And so doesn't that suggest that in some cases, using these foreign workers is basically part of the business model or is the business model of some of these companies? That's exactly right. That is what happens so frequently in these temporary worker programs is that a recruiting or or body shop type company figures out how to use the visa program and is able to market this to certain types of employers and basically goes to them and says, you know, I'm going to take care of all of your hiring problems. We're going to use this visa program. They, They structure their employment around the the requirements of the visa program, and they simply don't have to bother trying to find American workers to do this job, even though clearly we know that there are many American workers available to do this job with so many out of work, especially now, the pandemic. But even before, we've always had a, a troublingly high rate of people unemployed or not looking for work because they've given up on finding a job. And it's the very type of people who could fill these jobs, people who, for whatever reason, haven't had the benefit of a higher education. And they they need jobs like this that do not require a higher education. And they're or or even young people too. I mean, this is, you know, people starting out doing landscaping. I mean, I did some of that stuff when I was young. And I thought the the fish processing thing was a great example because Hillary Clinton, when she was young, actually spent a summer in Alaska doing fish processing. We have an extensive report on a different visa, but that provides workers for some of the same kinds of industries called the Summer Work Travel Program. And that has joined with the H-2B program basically to make specifically this fish processing occupation in Alaska something that basically foreignizes has foreignized that job in a way that wasn't true before. And, you know, the visa program has actually facilitated the kind of turning that into a job Americans supposedly won't do. That's exactly right. And it's it's true of a number of types of jobs where once college kids would do something like that for an adventure or another big sector that uses H2Bs is seasonal carnival workers. 
those are seem to be almost entirely H2B workers right now. And, you know, I worked in jobs like that when I was in college. You know, you did it kind of as a gig, and it was hard work and didn't want to spend the rest of your life doing it, but it was a great source of income at that moment when I didn't have any other skills that I could offer employers. So I hawked roast beef sandwiches and French fries at the local fairs in the summer. And so there clearly are workers who could do these jobs, but the existence of this visa program allows employers to avoid dealing or competing for American workers. And the fact that this is is happening in certain niche industries also explains the politics behind this, because we've seen over the years that there are certain members of Congress from certain parts of the country, like Alaska or North Carolina, where a lot or of Maryland, people, right, or Maryland, Maryland right, the crab pickers are one of the categories mm-hmm. of workers that are hired through H2B, and these members of Congress become almost patrons of this visa program on behalf of the employers in their districts or in their state and manage to get this program extended and sometimes increased without a thought of how other types of ways that these workers could be attracted. And it makes these, these industries dependent on these visa workers and unable to figure out an, a better way to operate without getting their foreign workers. Essentially, what the employers are doing is they're investing in congressmen rather than investing in ways of recruiting and retaining workers. So if you could just briefly then tell us, since we're talking about purchasing congressmen, what is it that Congress has done over the past few years to increase the numbers, the sort of cowardly and sniveling way that they have increased the numbers without having their fingerprints on it? Well, they yes, they have not wanted to be seen voting in favor of allowing more visa workers into the country. So what they've done instead is authorize the Department of Homeland Security to increase the cap for the H-2B workers up to a certain point. And they leave the work of justifying this to the public up to the executive branch, the Department of Homeland Security in particular. And For example, in the recent past, when Chad Wolf was the Secretary of Homeland Security... In the Trump administration. In the Trump administration, he agreed to raise the cap of H-2B workers by, I think, $35,000 last year. Even as the U.S. economy was literally shutting down all around us because of the start of the pandemic and the closure of all kinds of businesses, sending people to work from home, it wasn't until there was a real public backlash when people read about it and heard about it through the news media that the Trump administration relented and decided that it wasn't a good idea to bring in foreign workers in the middle of a pandemic when Americans were losing their livelihoods and international travel was being shut down. And the the justification by the lobbyists last year was really kind of perfect example of chutzpah. They said that because schools were closed, people had to stay home to take care of their kids. Therefore, Congress had to import these people to do the landscaping that the people who they used to employ can't do because they're at home watching their kids. I mean, besides being untrue, it was 
it's almost like a dictionary definition of gall. Uh, <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Right. So that's how Congress gets out of accountability for allowing more of these workers in. They, they shifted over to the executive branch, hoping that they're going to cover for them and forces the executive branch to pick a number and allow how many more are going to be allowed in in a given year. And the Biden administration has also agreed to allow more workers in. But again, this is an administration that claims to be friend of, of U.S. workers, and yet they are perfectly fine with allowing tens of thousands more workers in to do these jobs. While it, it seems like a small number of workers nationally, because they're concentrated in certain occupations and in certain industries and in certain states, it, it really does have an effect on these labor markets and denies opportunity to American workers. And I think it's important to point out, too, that this has been growing quite rapidly. Since 2013, the number of these workers has been increased by like 16%, 17% a year. So that especially depending on what Congress does, this may be small now, but it actually could grow. And that's a problem, a real problem for the whole immigration system, because this H-2B visa model, actually the guest worker model in general, is basically the way Saudi Arabia does immigration, not the way America does immigration. I mean, this is bringing in captive workers and then getting rid of them when we're done with them. And it's not immigration, it's sort of labor exploitation. It's, it's morally problematic, but you know, if it was a tiny share of the economy and had no prospect of growing, well, you know, whatever. I mean, you could see politicians kind of shrugging, but it's actually getting bigger and you know, has the real potential to kind of swallow up bigger and bigger share of our immigration system, not just this particular visa, but the whole idea of guest workers. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the particular employers that you found interesting? I mean, was there anything sort of more about some of these seafood companies or whatever that are the top employers that's worth noting? Yes, I, I think that a lot can be learned about the nature of this program if you look at who is using it and who is benefiting from it. Now, obviously, the workers benefit from it because they're making more money than they could make in their home country if they are not being exploited. And that is one of the dark undersides of this program that has been exposed through a lot of reporting over the years. Often, these workers are mistreated. Their hourly wage might look decent. You know, when you, you go through the Department of Labor data and the wage information that they have to provide on their applications for the workers. The wages look decent. We've analyzed them and found that they seem to be comparable to what U.S. workers are making, but sometimes the employers will take advantage of them by charging them a lot of money for uniforms, for training, for housing, for transportation. So the employer is taking back a big chunk of that wage in these hidden costs to the workers. And so there is that problem, and they, they are beholden to the employers if they want to stay on the payroll. Oftentimes, we can see that these employers are, are not exactly good corporate citizens. The top H2B user, for example, in 2020 was this Trident Seafood Company, which is based in Seattle, and they run food processing facilities all across the Pacific Northwest and also in Alaska. And in some of these towns in Alaska, 
the H-2B workforce actually is the same size or larger than the number of people who live in that town normally. So they come in for a big chunk of the year and work and then go home for a little while and come back. There really are questions about their treatment of the workers, but I think not necessarily coincidentally, this company, Trident, has been fined tens of millions of dollars over the years for other very problematic business practices particularly, for example, years ago, they were fined something like $25 million, the largest single penalty that a seafood company ever had to pay for releasing seafood processing waste off the coast of Alaska. Apparently, they were responsible for creating a 50-acre mass of gelatinous goo of seafood processing waste off of, in this pretty fragile environment off Alaska. They've paid environmental penalties for air pollution and for other kinds of penalties over the year. I mean, they just seem to be a serial environmental law violator. And as we find with illegal employment, often the companies that are dependent on foreign workers are violating lots of other laws as well. It shouldn't be a surprise that a company like this that is so cavalier about the environment it's working in is also essentially using what amounts to indentured foreign labor to do the work. And and I think if consumers were aware of that, they might think twice about why they're looking the other way at the system that we allow companies employing foreign workers like this um, and accountable for all kinds of things. When you said that the uh, wage paid, you know, nominally is comparable to what Americans are paid, but then there are all these deductions. But even without deductions, employers often prefer the foreign workers. BuzzFeed, believe it or not, you know, the, with all of the stupid listicles and everything they do, but they actually do some actual reporting, and they did a whole series of stories on H visas, H-2A and H-2B visas, and the not just the exploitation of the workers, which they did, but the harm it does to Americans. And in fact, one of the stories took its title from one of the things that an American foreman or manager had said, which was, all you Americans are fired, because there were a whole bunch of black Americans doing work. It was in Louisiana, I think, on some kind of, I don't know if it was seafood or something else. Literally, they fired the entire American workforce, black Americans, most of them, and replaced them with H-Visa workers. And that's one of the examples in a report we published, I think it was now two years ago, maybe, on Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, fines or victories in court against employers that preferred foreign workers over American workers. They weren't all H visa cases, but some of them were. So my point here is that even if they aren't deducting wages and are paying the same as they would to Americans, employers often prefer this program so that even if it doesn't cost them any more or less, they're able to fire their American workers and use these essentially captive workers whom they consider preferable. Right. And this is just not consistent with our values. We're a modern economy. We just don't need to have these kind of programs, especially with so many Americans struggling and and marginalized from the labor market. 
So what should we do about this? I mean, what, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Congress isn't going to be getting off the stick and doing anything soon, but it might in a year or two or three things change. And what are some of the recommendations you would have about how to either get rid of or fix this program? Well, I don't think there's any reason to have it. I think in a country our size, we don't need this kind of visa worker program. But if we assume that Congress is not going to be able to bring itself to ending the program, there are a lot of things that they could do through the law and that a president could do through regulation that would at least minimize the damage of this program. I mean, they could start by insisting that the jobs that are approved be truly temporary and seasonal, as in a season like four months of the year and not the whole year and not with people bringing families. And they could make the approval process more rigorous. They could make sure that companies that have been fined for other kinds of violations of federal law or even state or local law be barred from this program. But I think one big improvement to the program would be to make sure that there are consequences for not complying with the law, not only for a worker, but mainly for the employers and the recruiting staffing companies that are the ones that are really driving use of this program. What Um, kind of consequences do you have in mind? More fines for exploiting workers, but also, you know, one thing that we know happens, but we don't know the degree to which it happens, is that there are people who come as visa workers who are simply going to stay on after they get here and just maybe abandon the lousy job that they got hired into to get into the United States and remain here as an overstayer and an illegal worker. If that happens, and we know it happens some, we don't, we don't have any good data on exactly the cases in which it happens, but the Department of Homeland Security certainly could figure that out if we did a better checking out of workers, you know, and make sure they leave the country and are complying with the terms of their, of their visa. If we know that there are workers overstaying, we can figure out who they are and figure out who the employers are and who the recruiters were who brought them in and kick them out of the program. The workers are not going back to their home country or if the employers are not treating them well. There should be consequences. They should be booted from the program. That wouldn't be hard to do, and it would go a long way toward making this program at least fulfill what it says it is doing, that it is you know, allowing American employers to meet temporary needs. We should make sure that that's all it's doing, that it's not fostering these other problems that we've talked about of building niche industries around foreign workers as a business model and exploiting workers. And we do have a process for that. I mean, they call it debarment where a, uh, an employer is debarred, in other words, prohibited from using some particular program. And it's used occasionally, I mean, for H-1B employers and H-2B and other, but it's used extremely sparingly. We've done a little bit of reporting on that. I think David North, our colleague, has written some on this debarment issue. But the Labor Department, I think it's the Labor Department that's in charge of it, they are much too reluctant to debar companies. And if they do, they debar them for, you know, maybe one year or something like that. In other words, it's the tools exist to uh, make companies using these visas 
less rogue and more likely to follow the rules, but the government seems extraordinarily reluctant to impose the kind of penalties that it has the power to impose. Right. We need to make uh, it clear that we, you know, immigration laws are to be enforced in, in a serious way. Yeah, not not in this administration. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's uh, wrap it up there. I really appreciate it. We have plenty more on the H-2B visa on our website, cis.org. I think there's, if you go under topics, maybe I forget. Yeah, topics. Or just put H-2B in the search box. And we've got a, a significant amount of writing and research on this. Jessica, thanks for uh, taking the time and filling us in on this. And hopefully at some point, we will uh, have you back for a future podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks. And I hope our listeners will start looking into this program. It's really interesting. I think there's a lot of material for writers to look into specific companies, specific places where this visa is being used. And members of the, uh, the public can, can look up companies in their area that are, that are using this program and start to do something about it, shine some light on it, and insist that this not fly under the radar. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Finally, I just wanted to talk a little bit about something I uh, wrote in Real Clear. There'll be a link to it in the show notes, and there'll be an excerpt and link on our website, cis.org. And what I just laid out was, what is the Biden administration planning on doing about the border crisis? It's not just a matter of processing the unaccompanied minors and families more quickly into the U.S. That's not solving the problem. What are they going to do about reducing the flow? And there are basically three things they're looking at, kind of a three-pronged approach to reducing the flow. And I don't think any of them is going to be all that successful. There may be some short-term success, but in the long run, none of these things is actually going to solve the problem without fixing the pull factors, the reasons that people are coming here to begin with. The first prong of what the Biden administration is trying to do is outsourcing enforcement of the border to Mexico. We had talked about that a little bit in last week's podcast with Todd Benzman, but what they're essentially doing is trying to pay Mexico to do their dirty work for them so that they can, the Biden administration can have this open arms policy at the border but Mexico makes sure that no one can actually make it to the border. The Obama people tried something like that starting in 2014 when this issue of unaccompanied minors and Central Americans in general at the border really came to public attention. And it worked a little bit, but not very well, because pretty quickly the smugglers and the migrants themselves figured out how to get around whatever roadblocks there were, either physical roadblocks or metaphorical ones, which people to bribe, et cetera. And so the number of people at the border went down a little bit in 2015 after the 2014 increase, but then just turned around and started increasing again. So this idea of paying Mexico to do our border enforcement for us isn't going to work. When they're working with us and we're trying to deter illegal immigration, and they are also cooperating with us, then it can help. But what we're doing here with the Biden administration of having loose policies at our border, but trying to get Mexico to have tight policies, is kind of like being the security guard at the Walmart at midnight on the day after Thanksgiving, 
when everybody's trying to crash the doors to get to the Black Friday sales. You know, you can't entice people and then pay somebody else to keep them out. It doesn't work. The second prong of what the Biden people are trying to do is this root causes approach. In other words, address the reasons people are leaving Central America in the first place. This is supposedly the vice president's, her job. She's the root causes czarina, I guess. Interestingly, Biden, when he was vice president, was also in charge of addressing root causes. Didn't really work particularly well. And there's two problems with this root causes approach. First is, we have no idea how to fix these countries. You know, outsiders can't do that. Essentially, what the Biden administration is saying is that we have to do nation building in Central America. And it worked out so well in Afghanistan, I guess we figured we'd try it also in Central America. It's just not something that's likely to succeed. But even if it were, my colleague David North, probably the immigration researcher who has the longest experience on this issue of, you know, in any side of the issue, he's been doing this since the Lyndon Johnson administration, actually laid out kind of what you would do for a root causes approach, sort of a good faith effort to say, okay, if you're going to do this, Biden administration, here's the things you should do. But even if they took our advice, even if it worked, it would take decades to make any difference. It would have nothing to do with what's going on at the border now. And in fact, if it were to work, it almost certainly would increase pressures from Central America to migrate before eventually it would cause those pressures to decrease. That's what we've seen with around the world. As development happens, the practical ability, in other words, the money in your pocket to migrate increases. In other words, you can afford it, pay the smugglers and the travel costs, what have you, and also rising expectations cause people to want to migrate. So. This root causes prong of the Biden administration's approach is both unlikely to even work. We're not going to be solving the root causes of other societies' problems. But even if it did, it would be decades before it made any difference. And the final element of what the administration is trying to do is revive something that, again, the Obama administration did, which was called the Central American Miners Program. Miners as an underage people, not coal miners. And the point of this is just to fly people directly from Central America over the border into the interior of the United States so that the TV cameras can't take pictures of them. And I go into some detail in the article of what this was based on some work another colleague of uh, mine, Nayla Rush, has done. She wrote a, a pretty extensive piece on this CAM program, they call it CAM, Central American Miners. And there's a variety of reasons that it's just not likely to relieve the pressure. That's the thinking. If you fly people directly here, then not as many people will set out and try to sneak across the border. That's not going to work either. The real problem, and we'll probably have a future podcast discussing this, the real problem is the pull factors. And not the general pull factor of easy employment in the United States. That's an issue. But we have very specific loopholes in our law that make it attractive for a family to send an unaccompanied teenager to pay a smuggler to bring them to the U.S. and then, then they you know, turn themselves into the Border Patrol and they magically become unaccompanied, or adults to bring kids with them, family units, they call them, family migrant units, FMUs. There are specific loopholes that make it attractive 
to try to come across the border and use that as a, a gambit to stay in the United States. Until those things are fixed, the Biden administration's efforts, these three-pronged approach to try to limit the flow, may have some limited effect for a short period of time, but it's not going to solve the problem. That's all for this week. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy, the Center for Immigration Studies podcast, and everything, the podcast, as well as all of our publications are online at cis.org, and hope that you will tune in next week. Thank you.